Chapter 3 starts like this little bit of hope. It's a section of Scripture where like you're, you're reading it, and even as a believer, even if you've made it to what we're going to call chapter 12, that realization, even if you've made it to chapter 12 and you read chapter 3, you're like, I can relate with what Solomon's feeling. Anybody relate? You know, as Cliff was reading or as you read this week, you're like, man, there's, there's a lot of ups and there's a lot of downs in life. There's a lot of good and there's, there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of birth. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of sorrow. And yes, even for you Baptists, there's a lot of dancing. Like he's, he's, he's speaking words that are like making sense to all of us because we can relate. There's, there's a tornado of stuff going on in this place we call life. Now what I hate, not to, not to jump us all out of order, but this whole chapter kind of just reigns together as one key idea so we don't really have to do a, necessarily our old school verse by verse idea on it. But, but then he gets to the end and he's like, but we're going to die just like the animals die. We're going to be put in the dirt just like the animals are put. Like he, he was right there. He was getting it. There's even a couple of phrases in the middle that we're going to get on where, where you're like, yeah, he's realizing something, but then, then he misses it. And I've been trying my hardest to hold on for chapter 12. And the Lord hit me so hard this week on stop waiting for chapter 12 and start learning in chapter 3. You know what I'm saying? Like, like stop, stop. Yeah, chapter 1 and 2, they were a great setup for you understanding how miserable life this time of the, this side of the sun is if you're not living for his purpose and have no meaning. But don't you dare wait to chapter 11 and 12 before you finally start getting it. There's some glitches in chapter 3, and those glitches, if Solomon would have got it, would have made such a difference. I, I think of Solomon, and, I, and I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of living a Solomon idea this morning on, on what he's writing in chapter 3. As a, as a pastor, I've got a curse where I get to know and see more than the rest of you. And that is a curse. I'm not joking. I, I mean that wholeheartedly. It's not, it's not a weight that I would take away. It's, not, it's a calling, so, so I endure it, but it's a curse. I know stuff you guys don't know. And some of it sucks. But you know, the, the flip side of that is as a pastor, I also know some of the, the good that you don't know. And this morning, that's what I've been reminded of, just, just sitting and watching this morning play out. I, I, I had some bad, and, but then, then I, I, I see some good. And, and, and there's, some, there's some heartache, but then there's, there's some joy. And, and, and when you can combine those stories together and know what brought the joy out of the heartache, you can then look back at the heartache and the bad, and you can be like, oh, there's some joy coming in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's some good. There's, there's some, man, I'm not trying to go into the exact examples, but there's, there's some joy coming. Let's jump into this thing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. He starts with this. And I, I called this morning, Higher Mystery. Because for two chapters, he's been like on this, this mystery search. Like, what, what's it going to take to make me happy? What's it going to take to do it? And then he gets into more mysteries today of, of time, which is a mystery I don't think anybody's still been able to understand. Uh, by the way, time is just something for us. You ever realize God's not even bound by time? When God speaks, he doesn't use past and present tense. He, he just uses the detense. Like, because he doesn't have time. Time is just something for us. It's not for God. So when he, when he calls you a saint and you're like, you don't understand, I'm a sinner. No, you're a saint because he's not bound by time. He, he doesn't look at the past and then at the future. He he's just is all the time. Oh, you know, so, so there's some good there with that. But now he gets into more mystery. Like not just the time, but, but eternity. What happens after death? Kind of one of our questions that kick-started the whole thing. You know, we, we said you could ask anybody all kind of questions and, and they could answer quick. But then you ask them about, well, what happens when you're gone? And there's always that pause. There's always that, that hesitation, even for those that are sure. And Solomon writes, and he says, for everything, there's a season. There's a, there's a season. If I, my God, if you didn't name something that, that was on my heart this morning with your praise report. I was thinking, like, I, I tried to rewrite uh, the, these, there's 14, there's 14 uh, contrasts. In this list, you know, good, bad, bad, good, death, life, sorrow, joy, dancing, laughing. I mean, he's, just, he's going back and forth in all these contrasts. And I was like, man, if I was to write this in today's language, what, what would it be? And one of the first things that came to mind, and then two of y'all want to show up at church at the same time with, with, with a similar report. And it was like, we would write, there's, 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 a, there's a time for miscarriages, but then there's a time for birth. It was literally one of my, one of my thoughts. 
And then Jessica stands up at the back and tells you guys how much you prayed for that little blessing she's holding. And then a grandma will announce there was there were some miscarriages, but now there's there's birth. There's been some death, but there's been there's been life. And 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 man, I don't know if it's good advice for you to do it or not, but man, if you walk through this this chapter and you begin to realize all the all the contrasts. All the differences, and you put them in your language, put them in your life, put them in your situation, in your scenario, and you realize, man, there's, there's literally a season for everything. There's some seasons we don't like, and there's some seasons we look forward to. And there's this cycle where we unfortunately go back to seasons we don't like and seasons we do like. And then he adds to it, and he says, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Each of those seasons got a purpose. Each of those those periods, they have they have reason behind them. <laughs> and God picked me to be a tire boy. So I thought about all that this week. I'm dead serious. <laughs> this illustration will only apply to five of us in the room, but thank God for my five guys, right? Like <laughs> and their wives that may have to hear about it. And this is this is what hit me. I don't know if it was Tuesday or Thursday as I'm balancing a set of tires. I'm like, God wants balance in your life. All these seasons, all these purposes, all this stuff, all this mishap, God wants balance. God wants balance in the mysteries of life. It doesn't mean you're always going to understand the mysteries of life. It just means you're going to be able to bring balance to them. It doesn't mean you'll get an answer for why they were the way they were. It just means you'll be able to endure them. It means you'll be able to take a tire with a lot of run out and still make it right all right. All of the world, everything in this world is based on balance. I, I, I got stuck on that. And, and, and just to give just to give some certain things I was thinking of, man, and this, 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 this kind of slapped me in the mouth because I consider myself, I got guys that drive all the way to us to say, man, you, you can balance it and make it ride good even when other people can't. So, so it'll come, so I get a little, a little boastful about it. And then I started thinking about this thing called Earth, this big old globe. And I saw a picture of Earth, and it's not this exact circle like you would think all the time. Like, like it, it kind of is like a, almost like an oblong. It's an at-around tire. Y'all hang with me now, because I, I started checking this, and, and I started thinking about how, how nature has, has this balance. And, and then I looked at Earth, and it's tilted this exact angle to sustain life. It rotates at a certain number of miles an hour that it's faster than any car ever made, any plane ever made, and yet there's no vibration. My goal is just to make your car ride good at less than 60 miles an hour. If you come back and tell us it shakes on the interstate, I say don't go so fast. <laughs> I've got a realistic goal I want to set. God takes earth, this giant globe as large as it is, is out of shape as certain angles are, and he makes it spin perfectly in balance. I know that because if it wasn't in balance, you'd be flying off of it. Or you wouldn't be able to stand up on it. You, you, look, you, look, you look a little deeper into this thing, and I'm not going to go far into it because I know you guys didn't have the same revelation I had this week. But, but as I, I'm checking it out, I'm like, man, if we, were, if we were any closer to the sun, we would burn up. But yet, if we were only a mile further away, we would freeze. Do you see how exact it had to be? How, how perfect the balance had to be for it to work? In nature, ecologists, they look at the ecosystem and they, they look at the food chain and they call it a perfect checks and balances. When you exclude man and some of the stuff it does to it. Nature on its own they call it a perfect checks and balances. Your body, doctors say when you get sick, it's an imbalance in your body. That's what they refer it to. And they'll go into fancy things of like the red and the white uh, corpuscles or whatever those things are called and, and how they're either balanced or not balanced. And it says your health comes back when your body is, is balanced. Your health is restored when you're, when you're balanced. Your mental health is restored when you're balanced. So, so you got all these, these white and blood things bouncing around. you you got hormones bouncing around. Is your life out of balance when your hormones are bouncing around? And I'm not just picking on women. I'm picking on all of us. Am I right? 
I can get amens if I need to go into examples, but I'm trying not to dig any holes today, guys. It's because we're out of balance. Some of our lives aren't okay because we aren't okay. And Solomon goes through all these things, and he's, and he's looking at all this stuff, and he goes, man, all through life, all through life, if we would, if we would acknowledge the fact that God wants our lives to be balanced, how different it could be. Imbalance, it's a disease that, that's got a lot of different symptoms, yet it's got the same root, I think, when we really dive in spiritually. I mean, you can be imbalanced in your sleeping, you can be imbalanced in your eating, your work, your play. I mean, literally anything in your life you can be imbalanced in. And that one thing being off can, can mess up so much without purpose, without the Lord, without looking at it further than this side of the, of the sun, as Solomon continues to call it through this chapter. The problem is we tend to work so hard at making our public lives look balanced that we let our private lives slide. We're so worried about what, what everybody else sees and how everybody else looks at a smile and, and how everybody else hears, hears us talk and all that stuff that we don't let nobody see the private side, the side that really is unbalanced. Decide where, where whether we want to act like we're spiritual holy rollers or not, we've got the same thoughts that Solomon's having right now as he goes through these lists of the wise. The God, are you really in control? God, do you really know what you're doing? You, you guys might not be uh, bold enough to admit it, but I've asked God those questions. Solomon's not alone in this, this search. I've said, God, are you sure you understand what in the world you're doing? And, and, and a few times, I've, I've done it more than once, so yes, I should be at the altar, right? But, but, but the few times I've done it, he, he's given me that Job chapter where he gives me two chapters of all that he's in control of and reminds me, yeah, I got this. You just sit down and stop. Like he told the water, shut up and be still, right? Like he told the storm. But then there's other times where I'll be honest, he hasn't given that, that response. And that's when I got to decide, am I going to be balanced in my faith or am I going to let fear overtake it? They're, they're like, <laughs> this illustration, I spoke somewhere else, it says people's lives are like poor photographs, overexposed and underdeveloped. We've overexposed the public and we've underdeveloped the private. Is that not true? Right? And, and here's, here's just two problems that, that ring to mind this week when, when thinking about like when your life isn't balanced. When you, when you don't know how to control the, the seasons that are up, down, the opposites, the contrast. And number one is frustration. I don't know if you guys ever experienced frustration because of an imbalanced life, but frustration will take over. And a good picture, if you've ever seen, is that guy who, like, he takes out this pole and he's spinning a plate on it. I don't know if you guys have ever seen. I think they still call him a juggler technically. But, but he's got this pole and he's, and he's spinning this plate. And when he gets this plate spinning fast enough, he'll then go get another pole. And get this plate going. And, and you'll see, man, he'll walk down the line and he'll, he'll get all these plates just to spin it. And when it's spun just enough, he can go to the next one. But about the time he gets to number eight or number nine, that's the furthest I've ever seen him make it, he looks back and number one is falling. So he's got to leave all of them, come back to number one, spin it some more so that it can keep going. Then he can run down here and set up plate nine and ten. Oh, then plate two is out, so he's over here, and he's got to spin it back. Then he runs back and sets up eleven and twelve. Oh, plate three, and he's just running back and forth, trying to balance one thing at a time, when in reality, if he would have just balanced them as a whole, it might have made a difference. Is that your life? Solomon says this side, if you look at life, it only is this side of the sun, that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be frustrated because you're going to be running back and forth just trying to keep one plate, one plate spinning on one pole at a time. And eventually one of them's going to fall, one of them's going to crash, and it ain't going to be so pretty. That's how we live our lives. Working on one area at a time, one area at a time, getting, getting frustrated because there's, there's no balance. And then another one starts to fall off. Maybe we could have like a giant witness time right now where somebody could, don't do it, but, but you know, somebody could stand up and be like, let me, one aspect of life kind of thing, it's God owns it all. And if we don't give him complete reign over all of them, we're just going to be running back and forth trying to spin plates until one falls and shatters and we figure out how to, how to get it back up. So frustration is a result of an imbalance in your life when God's not in control. And Solomon, I think, is starting to realize that whether he, 
He fully does it in this chapter or not. Number two is this, fatigue. Not only do you get frustrated, but you get, you get tired. When life's out of balance, you get tired. And I go back to my balancing machine on Thursday. And I think about tires, because I got like 90 hours a week on tires. And if your tires aren't balanced, you're going to have a bumpy ride. If your life's not balanced, you're going to have a bumpy ride. But more so than this, as we look at tires and we look at the vibrations and, and we look at all this kind of stuff, it, 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 it goes a little further than that of what happens. So an imbalanced tire eventually is going to, to rub a spot in the tire a little different than it rubbed another spot in the tire. Kind of like our heads as men, a little bald spot in a certain spot because time didn't balance out well for us, right? But with this tire, what happens is it does this and it begins to ride worse. And it begins to ride worse, it begins to ride worse. And eventually, if, if it's never addressed and never solved, never with a rotation or change of air pressure or anything else, eventually that, that bad spot becomes such a flat spot that the belt then separates and the tire blows out. And I'm not saying you're going to have a blowout in life, but I'm saying when you're, you're tired because of an imbalance, you're going to have a burnout in life. And a burnout in life, just, it just makes you tired. You get so tired. The Bible says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, talking about Jesus Christ, probably our greatest example that we're to follow. I would say he's the most perfectly balanced human to ever walk earth. In Luke 2, 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and statue and in favor with God and man. That one verse talks about all the areas Jesus Christ knew how to grow in. He grew in wisdom. That means he grew intellectually. He, he grew in statue. That means he grew physically. Jesus, Jesus did not come out as a 30-year-old man with a beard, right? Like he had to, he had to grow. There was some physical growth that, that, that took place in this thing. Then it says he grew in favor with God. Now, I can't wrap my mind around how God incarnate becomes in favor with God, and I don't need to. That's beyond my understanding. But the illustration is he developed spiritually. And then it says he grew in, I love the order, by the way, too. That's very important, but we don't have time to go into it. But he grew, then he grew in favor with man. He grew socially. All areas that matter. Sometimes we say they don't matter, but they matter. It's, it's a perfect picture of a balanced humanity. I think it's huge for us to realize in this journal that, that until we finally realize that our time here on earth is to serve others like Christ, then everything on earth will be meaningless and vain. And all the seasons will confuse us. But I'm glad that God gave me the word that we don't have to wait to chapter 12. We can do it in chapter 3. We can take some ideas that Solomon finally gets in and run with them. Right? I mean, he's been writing and talking about this existence lived apart from God. It's frustrating and it's unsatisfaction. It's, he's looked at all the pleasures. He looked at all the stuff he can do. Yet, yet, for his own sake, none of these things seem to bring happiness. And his primary aim as, as the author, the, the, the preacher of the word we used at the beginning was that he was going to try to take all these personal experiences, all these earthly goals and blessings, and pursue them. And then he has to write about the dissatisfaction and the emptiness that came because he was pursuing them on his own and not with the meaning of Christ. Chapter 3 kind of begins to, to change some stuff right here. So, right, so, And you could say it this way, how balanced you are determines how well you can handle change. Change is coming whether you want it to or not. You hear me? Change is coming. Both in churches, both in your life, both in your marriages, both in the, the stage of life that you're in. I mean, change is coming. And, and we will all experience seasons of life, seasons of change as he goes through this stuff. Some of them will enjoy. Some of them will look forward to. Some of them will dread. Some of them will love because they bring joy. Some of them will hate because they bring weeping. But as I read this thing and I, and I catch just a glimpse of what Solomon's got in the middle right there as he transitions back into the negative, it, is that God's in control, though. To know that, that, that all seasons are coming for everybody and to see that, that God is the, the master of them? To know this truth gives me the ability to, to plan and prepare for change. And sometimes what will knock your socks off is the fact that you didn't plan and prepare for change. If you know, plan, if you know it's coming, maybe, maybe you could pray it this way. A prayer taken from um, St. Francis of Assisi. I probably said that wrong, but you'll be all right when your notes... You, you, you can write it down just like I say it, because that's the only way I can read, right? So the American language sucks, and it's probably not right. But however I said it is how you can write it down. 
It says, God grant me, some of you probably heard this, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that last part is so important. God, give me, give me the ability, give me the strength to accept stuff I can't change. I don't know about you, but that's a struggle, man. I don't like things I can't change. Especially as, as you know, men are wired. You, well, ladies have to forgive us. Like, men are wired to be able to try to fix things, so we want to be able to change things that need to be changed. A lesson you all going to learn, men, eventually in life is there are certain things you can't change. And that's tough. Then he says, the courage to change the things I can't. But there is some things you can if you get the courage to do so. And then that last part, and just give me the wisdom to know the difference. If you don't know the difference, you're going to be changing things that are trying to change things that you can't change, and you're going to be forgetting to change things that you could change. And you're just going to beat yourself up because your life's going to be out of balance. But if you're walking by faith and you got that serenity granted, man, oh, it's so different. We've got, we got to realize that inevitable change is coming. And here's why we don't like unwanted change. It takes us out of our comfort zone. Right? I mean, just the very beginning when he starts this thing, he says, and there's life. And again, I give you, I give you an illustration like if, if, you, if we were all pastors, how your day could go. It could start with a phone call of, man, we've got this baby. She's born. She's here. It's beautiful. She's got ten toes. She's got ten fingers. It is great. And there might be some stuff throughout the day, but then you get a phone call at the end of the day that says, we lost so-and-so. They're no longer with us. See how it changes? What if it's that time of the year where, like, unexpected happens, but then there's a plan? See, you plan for a wedding, so what if there's, what if there's a date where there's a wedding plan, so you do that, and that's so much joy, such excitement, but, but then the unplanned of that funeral then has to happen on the same day. The ups and the downs. The unwanted change takes you out of your comfort zone. We're reluctant to accept the thing sometimes because we, really because we just don't want to change. God uses change to promote us and grow us, though, is what, what Solomon's going to get at through this thing. He says, he says change will cause us to, it causes us to reevaluate our lives. We believe Solomon got to the end of his life and he's sitting back and he's, he's evaluating now. Change. Change. We said a couple weeks ago, like he's developed all this stuff, all this great stuff. And then he sits back and he goes, and I got to leave it to that idiot of a son. I've made all, I've got, I've got, I've got buildings that hold my sports cars and all my stuff. I've got houses as tall as you can get. They've never had such structures in the city and the land I've got. I've got kings that come to see me. Yet that moron of a son is who I got to leave it all to. But it's inevitable. He understands. I'm going, I'm going to die. It's got to go to somewhere. So change moves us to look at ourselves differently. Ch uh, change allows us to, to check out things from a different perspective. I think of the, the disciples when they, when they, when they faced Jesus' crucifixion. The disciples were reluctant for change. I mean, when you really think about it, think about how they, how they went about it. No, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. We want you to stay with us. Jesus, if you just want to take over the, the territory, we will, we will do it. We will support that. That's how we kind of thought you would come in. We thought you would come in and take over and be the ruler. We didn't think you were going to ride on a donkey. We thought you was going to ride on a stallion. Yet then Jesus goes to the cross. He makes it there. He dies. And you think, oh, that, that would end them then because it wasn't what they expected. No, that change allowed them to sit back and look and realize, hold on, guys. Jesus was preparing us to expand his kingdom. So now they've been scattered like seed to go perform all the good works for the sake of the kingdom to expand the gospel. It took that change, an uncomfortable change, to motivate them to do what they were supposed to be doing. Change will cause us to seek God's guidance. And I pray that we're motivated to seek it more fully. Change adjusted Paul's attitude. If you go to Philippians chapter 4, when he's, when he's first writing, he says, the attitude of humility. He talks about, I've had this and I've had, I've had all kinds of stuff. He's kind of he's like a Solomon on a smaller scale. But he says, but I've learned to be content. I've learned to be strongest with what God says is just enough. 
At the same time, he's writing the Corinthians, the second Corinthians chapter 12. And, and for a couple chapters in that first one, he has to write about how awesome he is so that they understand. Not, not in a boastful way, just in a way of, hey, here's my credentials. I'm the real deal. But when he gets to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he then realizes something. He goes, man, I, I got to humble myself a little bit and let them know, like, God's allowed this thorn to stay in my flesh. We don't know what the thorn is. We got all kinds of speculations and all kinds of stuff. But he literally says God placed that thorn there, and Satan was a force being used there to keep him in check. That's how he writes. That, that's how humble he gets. That's how much he understands how it's got to be balanced. Solomon's beginning to realize, and here's probably the greatest, the greatest part of chapter 3 or the greatest lesson of chapter 3, and you can write just these couple words down and get it all summed up. Solomon realizes he's not in control. He may have had all the money. He may have had all the ways to seek stuff out. He may have had all the times to experiment with items. But he realized, I'm, I'm not in control. I can't even affect the seasons of life and death. Like, I can't. I can't, I can't affect any of this stuff. And, and maybe the greatest thing you can realize is realize you ain't in control either. You're not in control either. Solomon laid out 14 pairs of life's polarities. Endless cycles of events that come one after the other. And what he realizes through all these cycles, through all this stuff, is that time is not in his hands, time's in God's hands. He begins to get just a... Just a glimpse of hope, man. When you read it, you're like, hey! Now, don't get me wrong. I told you in week one for the introduction, he never uses God's uh, uh, covenant name with the people. But at least he's acknowledging there's, there's an eternal father. And he says in verse one, there's a time for everything, a season for everything under heaven. Then he skips all the way down to verse 11. He says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. You got to see something in its time to realize how beautiful it is. Because if you see it out of context of time, it might not appear so beautiful to you. In Psalm 139, verse 16, he writes and he says, all, and we're going to come back to this one again in a minute, but he says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book. God, you knew from the very beginning, like, like time was in your hands from the very beginning. Like you knew, you knew before I even came out what was going to happen. Now, I'm going to go ahead and get there. I was going to save it for in a minute, but let's just go ahead and look at it. Like he says this. Let me finish the verse then. All these days were ordained in your book before one of them came to be. What David is saying to God is he's saying, God, you knew about the good days and you knew about the bad days. You knew that, you knew that day I was going to hold my boy in my arms and celebrate having a son. But you also knew about the day I'd stand on a tower and look at a woman bathing and begin that slide. You, you knew the day that I would take a lunch to my brothers who were getting ready to fight. And you knew that same day I was going to pick up a slingshot. Knock a giant in the head, pick up his sword, cut his head off, and walk around town all day long holding the sword in the head still in my hands. But then you also knew the day that I would sit at the temple and everybody would be confused because I would be mourning the loss of a child. When he says, all of my days were ordained and you wrote them down in your book before they came to be, he's acknowledging the fact that time is in God's hands. He knew the good and he knew the bad. And he knew how to use both of them. You realize all, all we can really do is measure time to market time, but we have no control over it? I, th I think time was just invented for us, by the way. I, I, I really do. I think when we get to the kingdom, I don't know if there'll be a such thing as time. I mean, some of y'all got this picture, you're going to walk through the kingdom, and, and there's going to be a grandfather clock like right in the middle that, that, that has, I don't know if that, I don't even know there's going to be a clock. I'm going to be honest. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he says, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. He's in control. You realize he's in control even when we're not? Solomon's right here about to, he's about to be able to grasp a great concept of God is in control even when I don't understand it. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, speaking of his second coming, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the dates, the ties, 
that the Father has said on his own authority. He's in control. Even when we don't understand it, even when we don't know it. Funny thing about time, you can't accelerate it and you can't delay it. A guy just this week was like, man, I feel like time is going faster now. And in my head, I was like, yeah, you're right. I feel the exact same way. Like it is, it is flying. But it's still 86,400 seconds every day. And, and because you didn't use some of the seconds from the day before, you don't get to add them on to the next day. 86,400, whatever you didn't, whatever you didn't use, it's wiped out. I bet if it was money, y'all would use it all. You ever thought about that concept? Think about it. You get 86,400 seconds every day. And because you didn't use some from the day before, you don't get to add it on. But if I was to tell you, I'm going to give you $86,400, and at the end of the day, your bank don't get to have the rollover, I bet you'd spend every dollar. You'd figure out a way to make sure every dollar was spent. Right? Why do we waste so much time? Or why do we waste it on the wrong thing, maybe I should say? Solomon's realizing, like, if, if time is in God's hands, then evidently his timing is perfect. He's beginning to, like, think now. We may not understand the season. We may not particularly even like the season. Yet if God ordained the season, and he's sovereign concerning time, then there's something for this season. I think of Joseph, man. You imagine being a guy like Joseph where like everybody in the world would laugh at you because of your mentality and yet you would be able to look at your brothers years after they had sold you to slavery, years after you had been in a cave, years after all this stuff of working your way up and you'd be able to look at him and be like, this was God ordained. I don't know if I could have that. I can't have that same attitude. I mean, I got seasons in my life right now and I'm like, God, I don't like these seasons. I don't know why you're ordaining them. You need to spin earth just a little bit faster to get me out of this junk. You know, like, I'll be honest, I'm just, I'm just telling you how I feel. God, I, I, now you speed this one up and get me to summertime. I need my Edisto Beach Week like now. I don't have time to go through the winter. I ain't got time for the storms. I ain't got time for no snow. I ain't got time for it. But yet God looks at me and be like, son, I'm in control of time, not you. Right? If I was to only give you sunshine, you'd be nothing but a desert. But I bring some rain so that you can produce a crop. Right? God knows what he's doing. Even when I don't understand it. God, that's so hard to understand though, right? But I can acknowledge it. I can acknowledge it. I can accept it. Psalm 31 verse 15, David speaking to God. And he tells him the same thing I've learned to start praying. My times are in your hands. They're in your hands. My times are in your hands. The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my persecutors. Oh, if Solomon would have learned some of the stuff from his daddy, how different it could have been. But then as much as we love David, we have to acknowledge the fact he was a poor father. And maybe that's why Solomon's writing the journal years later about being confused about an imbalance because time makes no sense whatever time or season you find yourself in if you could acknowledge like david rather than solomon then you have the ability to enjoy it it's fun to like sit back sometime i, I know you don't like some of the times you're in but it's fun sometimes to sit back and and try to see it from god's point of view god what you doing what you doing I saw some of it this morning when I started. I wasn't, I wasn't blowing smoke on seeing more curses and seeing more good than some of you. Like, I really do get to see some of that. And, and as I saw some of the good, I was like, God, I didn't know you was doing it like that back then. And you might not ever get to see that. You might not. But then you, one day you might just get to see somebody, somebody living a certain way, somebody doing a certain thing, and you know the hell they went through, and, and you, God, I didn't know you was doing it. I didn't know you was going to put them right there again. I didn't know you was going to bring them and restore them. I didn't know you was going to bring enough rain to produce a crop back in them again. And it becomes so pretty, man. Recognize his goodness and his faithfulness in all seasons. Maybe our problem is we get stuck reminiscing or regretting the past, hoping and longing for the future, that in the process of all that, we just miss the present. Let me say that again. 
Too many times we get stuck reminiscing or regretting the past, hoping or longing for the future, that we get in a process of missing the present. Present's all you got. That's it. And one of us promised tomorrow, and ain't nothing you can do about the yesterdays. We don't have to like them, but that's just reality. Fourteen contrasts about reality. And this list, this list goes on. I, I think he's almost getting at a point where he's like, we ought to start taking advantage of some of the, some of the good in here. Right? You're not going to like the bad, so you might as well just embrace that part, but take advantage of some of the good. Right? Some, somebody wrote, y'all don't think I'm ever on Facebook. Let me tell y'all, I'll be reading some of it sometime. Right? Somebody wrote the other day about the, the, the prom we got coming up. They said, hey, we're going to be allowed to dance? Yes, you can, with a book in between you, just like we did at our prom. <laughs> Dancing up in a Baptist church. What is wrong with you? Then I realized, well, that person ain't never been to one of the others. <laughs> Valentine banquets. Because we know how to, well, you ain't never been there, you don't get to know. <laughs> you just sold 25 more tickets with that one line right there. Look at 9 through 11, man. 9 through 11, we get this glimmer of hope. And, and, and here's, what, here's what the hope is. Here's what it's building up to. He's seeing God as this master talent. Look at what he says. What profit has the worker from that which he labors? I have seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be, be occupied. This preacher, this, this Ecclesiastes guy, he, he's, he's asking the right kind of question that he's asked before. And yet this time he's also finding the answer as he writes. This time he finds an answer in the God-given task that God gives to men. He's saying these are God-ordained jobs. These are God-ordained things. He has made, look at what he says right after that. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I, I challenge some of y'all, and I challenge myself as well. Go back and look at some of the everythings in your life and just jot down why they were beautiful in its time. It'd be tough on some seasons. You won't understand some of them. But I think then, because you can look back years later and see more than you could have saw it that day. That's, that's part of the gift of time, I guess. You can look back and say, man, I, I didn't realize it then, but I didn't know it was going to promote me to here or bring me into a relationship with somebody else or, you know, whatever it is. Made everything beautiful. This is a guy who isn't even, isn't even sure what he believes about eternity right now, guys. Yet he still has this little glimpse in the middle where he says, everything is beautiful in its time, the good and the bad. You imagine being a guy who's asking, who's already tried all these pleasures? So he realized the good. Hey, a thousand wives. There's some good there. But then he realized that's a thousand to-do lists. There's some bad there. Right? Like he's, he's realized, hey, hey, a thousand women. A thousand mother-in-laws. That's where I was going. Amen. <laughs> right? Like he's, he's realizing the good and the bad. We already said that one. I don't want a honey-do list. Maybe that's why he was able to accomplish so much, though. Now you ever thought about that, huh? Maybe all those buildings he was building, all those sheds, and all those sports cars he was buying. Back to the list at the beginning of the chapter. He says, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Every bad facet answers each good facet. And he says, even in that, in the, in, even in that moment, that there are good things in life and there's bad things that, that can't be escaped, they're still beautiful. But he says, in their time. Yet even those times that can't be escaped are, are beautiful in, in its right. You realize timing is everything? Timing is everything to, to so many extents. You remember when Jesus, in the New Testament, they're being talked to uh, about the wheat and, and the chaff, and he says, well, well, shouldn't we go in there and pull all the weeds up so, so, that, so that the crop can grow better? He says, no, 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 no. It ain't time for that. You let the weeds grow with the wheat, and there'll be a time where we pull them all up together and it'll take care of it. Timing's everything. If they were to go through and pull them up at the wrong time, they'd pull up the wrong stuff. And it would be destroyed. They would destroy a whole, a whole harvest, a whole crop. So God tells them, no, no, you got to wait. We looked at it Wednesday night with the men, man. They know they're missing. They're getting ready to, they're getting ready to cross over that, that river and, and go kick some giant hiney, right? Literally giant hiney. Uh, so like they're getting ready to go do that. And, and they're getting ready to fight. And yet it says, I want you to wait three days. I don't know about you guys, 
but, but I've been hyped up for some stuff in my life before, you know? I don't know if I can keep the hype up for three days. When I get the hype, I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm ready for that game today. I'm ready to rip your jersey. I mean, um, I'm re- you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm ready. I don't even get to play no more, but I'm there. I don't know if I can keep the hype up for three days, Lord. But God says, if you charge right now, you'll, you'll make a grave mistake. Because in these three days, I've already sent spies over there that are coming back with their report. In these three days, I've got you 40,000 warriors that just got ready to come do battle that made a promise to a generation before you that they would come and fight for this land with you and obtain it for you 100%. Timing's everything. And Jesus, back to Jesus with his, with his men. He says, you, you let, it all, let it all get produced. And then in my time, the right time, we'll pluck it all up together and I'll separate it. See, not only is timing right, but who's in charge of what goes on in the time is right. Some of us mess up because we want to do it in our time. Some of us mess up because we don't want to do it in any time. Right? It takes a little bit of both. Balance. Go back to that balance theme. Then in verse 2, as we get to the end of this chapter, chart the transition, maybe a little bit sadder, I guess, but, but he says death is inevitable. He starts the chapter with two opposites. There's life and there's death. You're not in control of either one of them. You didn't get to control when you were born, and you don't get to control when you die. Y'all ever heard them little brats? I don't know why you had me. Why'd you have me when you had me? I wish you'd had me years before. I wish you'd had me years after. Right? They're always, you don't get to pick when you're born. You suck it up and you'd be glad you was born at all. Right? And then we get old and we do the opposite. I don't understand why you had to die now. I don't understand why you took it now. You don't get to pick that. So, so he puts two bookends on the, on the two greatest things, this side of sun, that you have no control over. You don't get to decide. When you're born, you don't get to decide when you die. And you don't get to decide anything in the middle. But what he says at the beginning of chapter 2 and as he closes, I mean, sorry, what he says at verse 2 at the beginning of the chapter, he covers all over the end of the chapter is this acknowledgement of this. Death is inevitable. Time is eventually going to run out. And as he writes this thing, this thought came to me that if you don't know the Lord, then you're you're prone to feel the same way Solomon feels right now. You're prone to like approach death with more fear than you ought to. Now I'm not saying death doesn't always have some sort of, of fear about it or uneasiness about it, but when you know the Lord and, and you know what He's got planned for you, you know the there, there's a peace that comes for it because you realize it's not the end; it's a transition. It's, it's not, a, not, a, not a done and, and sealed thing. It's a transition to the next thing. But if, but if you don't know the Lord, man, that's scary. Because then you really have no idea what comes next. And Solomon sums it up. He goes, man, if you don't believe in anything after this, then all you believe is this, that you die and you go into the dirt just like an animal. That was one of my first real-life realizations. You know, Celeste's idea is, is huge. That growing up in church is, is so vital and so important. Being, being trained and nurtured at a young age is, is so important. But, but as you do that, you're going to get some real life stuff. And one of my first real life things, I just sat one day and I thought, and I was like, there's no way I can bring myself to believe that I just die and become dirt and that's it. But, but just that thought is what approached me then into checking out things on my own. You ever sat and thought about it? At least Solomon's sitting and thinking about it, right? At least he's not wasting his time. 86,400 seconds. Back to the list of beginning. A time to be born, a time to die. So, so he's going through this thing, and then he gets to verse 17. And he says, now judgment, judgment is also unavoidable. Death, death is inevitable, it's coming. And judgment itself is unavoidable. But, but here's what he realizes. Even this guy, I'm not the judge. You know how tough that was for the king of kings of his time to have to acknowledge the fact that I, I don't get to be the judge. But on the flip side, can you imagine what that means to people who's hoping somebody's going to get theirs that didn't get theirs yet? I'm just being real with you, right? Y'all, if y'all never had that thought, y'all holier than me? I've had that. I'll be honest right now. I ain't going to lie to y'all none in any which way. I done had the thought I can't wait till God gets his on the one I didn't get to get mine on. Right? I'm not as holy as y'all. Y'all just forgive me. Have some love for me. God will forgive me. It'll be all right. But God's going to be the judge. But, but there, there's an assurance in that. Because I'm not in control again. 
It goes back to Solomon's realization through the whole thing. I'm not in control of time. I'm not in control of when birth comes. I'm not in control of when death comes. I, I'm also not in control of the judgment. That's, that's on God being the judge. And I think for Solomon, that begins to bring forth a little bit of hope because then he realizes that eternity is undeniable. And, and here's what he says about it. Verse 11, he says that he, talking about God, has put eternity in their hearts. He's acknowledging this idea, this preacher's understanding that, that, that man has this awareness of a longing for the eternal. And he acknowledges the idea that it's God that put that in my heart. Maybe you could say it this way. We can say that eternity is in our hearts because we're made in the image of an eternal God. So that that's automatically there because it, it, we're like him. So, so we know there's more, right? Verse 14, he says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Now, this, this is a pretty verse if you don't catch it. It's so pretty because here this preacher is escaping, even if it's only for a brief moment, he's escaping the fact of, of his under-the-sun thinking because now he's acknowledging that there's a God who brings escape, but he's also acknowledging that this God is eternal. And if he's eternal, then it matters to us. There's some hope in chapter 3 that's going to get us through the rest of the book to get to chapter 12. And God requires... Here's what he says, and God requires an account of what is past. He, he, he reflects this, this escape from under the sun thing. He says, if God judges the heart and the deeds of man, then, then maybe everything does have meaning. You see, just that, that, that slight, that's all it takes is a slight moment. You wonder how you can minister to a kid. You wonder how a kid can, can minister to you. All it takes is a, is a slight moment to get your thinking cap on. Because now for nine chapters, he's got this thought of maybe everything does matter. He's going to go into some more experiments. He's going to mess up a little bit. He's going to get away from some of it. But, but, but he's going to acknowledge there's, there's this eternal longing inside of me. There's, there's this idea of judgment. There's this, there's this idea of, of all this stuff. And this is nothing new. We've got Native Americans that have, and tribes in other countries that, that have never, never had a, a gospel presented to them as far as the, the book itself and, and some Bible verses, yet they got the idea that there's a creator and they got the idea that there's an eternity. They've even tried to figure out ways to prepare for eternity. They're so sure of it, even though nobody's preached it to them. You, you've got Buddhists and you've got Hindus that pursue it through reincarnation. You've got Muslims that pursue it through good works and, and jihad. Uh, but what you don't have is the acknowledgement that a lot of people need to realize that eternity can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or at least in a, in a, a lasting eternity, a real eternity. An eternity that matters. And, and hear me right now, because I know we like to go to funerals and tell everybody that everybody's in heaven and all that good stuff. I understand this. Anybody can believe and receive Jesus. No doubt whatsoever. Right? The kingdom of heaven is not an inevitable destination, though. It's an accessible destination you understand the difference it's not inevitable it's accessible anybody through jesus christ knowing him as lord and savior 100 sure but don't don't let's dare get fell into a trap of thinking why death is real that judgment's not real life is temporal death is inevitable judgment's unavoidable eternity's undeniable and solomon for two chapters has realized how little all this stuff may really matter He's got appearance without any, without any depth. You realize that's what Solomon's really got going? He's been talking about all these pleasures and all this stuff. He's got appearance without depth. Maybe that's a sermon in itself for somebody. If your life is full of appearance without any depth, whew, then maybe you could ask yourself, does it really matter? He's realizing how, as powerful he was, how, how he's actually not in any control because God's in control. He realizes that if you look around the world, and you can ask questions like Solomon's father. You, you don't understand if God's in control. What's he doing? God, are you sure you, you got this thing? And this thought came to me last night as we left the house, and I had to repeat it in my head. Luckily, I have a wife who understands I talk to myself a lot. I even answer myself every now and then. But as I'm riding down the road, she said, what would you say? I said, hold on. i got to say it a couple more times to, to see if I got it right. And then, then, then it hit me the right way. You need to be careful not to judge God by circumstances, but to rather judge your circumstances by who God is. And we look at time, and we look at all this stuff, and we look at eternity and everything, that's a powerful thing to understand. That we're not judging God by circumstances, but we're judging our circumstances by God. A British preacher, Campbell Morgan, 
He said, and I quote, only when the soul looks out upon the circumstances from the standpoint of a fellowship with God and acknowledge of him can it be optimistic. A lot of people read Solomon and they read this, this Ecclesiastes book and like, man, that is one pessimistic guy. In reality, let's just be honest, he's a realist. He's writing exactly what actually happens in life. And this, this, this great preacher, this British preacher, Campbell Morgan, he acknowledges the fact like, without a fellowship with God, without a knowledge of him, can we really be optimistic? Is there really an optimistic view without a love of him? So as you look at the circumstances of your life and you think about God, you can see a God who's working to, to meditate on. You can be optimistic knowing that, that it's not up to, to blind chance or fate because God's in control. That changes things when you realize that, right? You don't try to understand God. Here, here's a big one. You don't try to understand God by your circumstances either. Rather, you understand your circumstances by God. That one might even be better than the first one, right? Don't try to understand God by your circumstances. Rather, understand your circumstances by God. Balance, the right balance. The Bible teaches about God wanting to provide and watch over us. And maybe the wording's not there, but the concept is. Because in Matthew chapter 6, 26 and then 28 through 30, it, it says, look at the birds of the air. I use this because Solomon gets mentioned here, right? So look at the birds of the air. For the, they, don't, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. They don't have a, a whole industry of storage sheds that people make millions of dollars off of in America. Yet your heavenly father still takes care and feeds them. Are you not more valuable than a bird? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Oh, you of little faith. We talked about Psalm 139, verse 16, where David is talking to God. And he told him, he goes, man, you knew me before I was even formed in the womb. You know, I was thinking about that verse this week because I was just thinking about some of the stuff we, we have no answers for. And one of our biggest debates is what? Abortion and everything. And, and then we try to say, well, where does life begin? And they don't have arms or they don't have legs yet. And it hit me like, what if I was to bring in one of, one of, our, one of our amputees that went to war for you? No arms, no legs, just a body and a head. You're going to tell me that's not a real person because they don't have arms and legs? I don't think you would. So what's the difference when it's in the womb? Right? There's such simple visuals that answer some of the toughest questions. Or questions we try to make tough. I don't even know if they're that tough. We just try to, we try to contemplate them. Right? I told you about the one dude before I was reading an argument online where he said, yeah, but, but, but the scripture says that life, life is in the blood. I was like, that's good because blood comes in on like day two, I think it is. So I guess we're all right. I don't know if we want to get that specific on an argument about it, but this is David. David talking about you knew, you knew me before I was in my womb. You, you knew the bad days, the good days, the tearful days, the laughing days, the mourning days. And because of that, here's what I think David realizes. God, you knew how to balance my life. You knew that difficulties were good for me. You knew that rain would, would, would bring, some, bring some growth. You knew that it would teach me to depend on you, to humble myself, and have the right attitude toward others maybe. If you want to be better rather than bitter, just turn to God. Imagine how bitter Solomon was as he wrote some of this stuff. Imagine how better he got when he had some realization about God. Right? Man. They say, I've, I've used this, this quote before, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. It, it's not your circumstances. It's how you respond to the circumstances. What, what one person could turn to God, be soft, pliable, be blessed by the Lord, where another one could get hard and turn their back on him. Same sun, just a different person. Same, same circumstances, just a different way of dealing with them. Matthew chapter 4, 4, Satan's tempting uh, uh, Jesus, and he says, I want you to turn these stones into bread. And he responds with this, man shall not live on bread alone, but on the very word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoting a, a scripture from Deuteronomy. And I thought about that verse this week as I, as I thought about, like, that's what these guys are doing. They're trying to live this side of the sun with the bread of this world, and they're missing the fact that you can't live on bread alone. Solomon writes, <laughs> just look at some of the stuff he says in this chapter. This is a depressed guy, by the way. Who still says in verse 12, rejoice, do good, 
Verse 13, he still says, enjoy the good. Verse 14, he says, fear the Lord. You know, Christianity isn't just for later, it's for the now. We, we've developed this idea that we're just getting people ready for the future. No, we're getting people ready for now. Fulfillment now. Knowing and walking with God now. Joy now. Promises now. Solomon writes in he, this side of the sun. He doesn't understand that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus was resurrected. He didn't get to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul would write the church and let them know that there's hope beyond the grave. Solomon looked around the world today and he said, man, animals die and, and people die and we, we put them all back into in the dirt. And if that's as far as you're willing to look, you're going to have a depressed attitude and an imbalanced life. <laughs> Ruth Graham, I picture her riding through one of the mountains up in North Carolina. Billy Graham's wife, if y'all don't know who that is, by the way. She comes home one day. This is in one of their books. He asked why she was late. She talks about this detour she had to make and how the signs, you know, were flashing and, and had all this stuff as she made it through. And she says, I, I got to the end and they had this last sign up. And she begins to smile. Billy writes about it. And it says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. Well, Billy's looking at her and, he, and he, you know, why are you smiling about this? Like most people be unhappy with traffic and, and the headache of sitting there right there. And she goes, Billy, because that's what I want on my tombstone. So I researched it. Sure enough, at the grave of Ruth Graham, on the tombstone, it says, end of construction, thank you for your patience. Is that not cool? Right? There will come a day when construction will be over. You'll be at the end of construction, and the kingdom's going to come. Thank you for your patience. You're not really ready to live until you're ready to die. You understand that? I'm serious. You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. And you're not ready to die until you know how to live. Or at least you know what you're living for. Maybe I should word it that way. King, King Henry VIII. Let me give you this one to take it ready to come sing. King Henry VIII, he, he desired a son so much. Some of you know the story. He was, he was one wicked dude. But when the wife had a baby and it wasn't a son, killed her. Did this multiple times. Killed wives for other reasons too, but he was just a... It's a messed up household, right? You think your household is messed up? You ain't got nothing on this household. And, and here's the funny part. I'm sitting, there, I'm sitting there thinking about this, and I'm like, evidently dude didn't know science because the man is who determines if it's a boy or a girl. So if he'd have had a science lesson a little bit earlier, maybe it would have changed some things. But, but, but it made me ask, like, why was this guy, why did that extreme? I mean, I understand I understand why he wanted a son. I understand how that rain works and all that kind of stuff. And, but, but why did that extreme? And then I realized it's because he wanted the, his whole world, his worldview, all resolved around him. And when your worldview only resolves around you and your little world and your little kingdom, then when it don't go your way, when it's out of balance, you're not going to know how to respond the right way. But if your worldview, if the cause of your life, the purpose of your life is for him, what is the cause? Don't answer it out loud. Just think on it. Think on it while they play music. Think on it while I pray in a minute. Think on it if, if you need to just think while they're singing. Think then. What are you living for? What is your purpose? What is your reason? Is your life balanced? If, you're, if your worldview is you, it ain't balanced. You think it all revolves around you and what you need to do and, and you, 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 you. I just want to choke some people sometimes when I hear them talk because I hear them talk about the, the I and the me so much. And I scratch my head and I'm like, you're missing it. And then I realize we need to let the weeds <laughs> grow with the harvest. Even when we want to pull out a weed eater chop them down you guys pray with me Father God I thank you for this morning Lord I thank you for your truth I thank you for I thank you for hitting home Lord God with Solomon today I thank you for <laughs> I thank you for getting a little bit past his brain and his thinking and, and hitting that heart just a little bit opening his, his realization Lord God that you're in control and he's not 
More than Solomon, Lord God, 2,500 years ago, I pray for us today. I pray that if there's one of us in this room that thinks we in control, that we surrender control to you right now. God, that we just, we let go. We let go of what control we thought we had and we follow the path that you've ordained that you mean to do well with in our life. God, help us to accept change even when we don't like it. God, help us to have a, our eyes open to seeing things. Help us to put on our God goggles so that we can see things through your eyes. God, help us to see the, the pain that we've caused through your eyes. Help us to see the joy through your eyes. Help us to see people through your eyes. God, I just, I thank you, Lord, for the unknown. I thank you that you're in charge when we're not. And God, I just pray that we're strong enough to follow your lead. In your name we pray.